Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Contractor Evolution Show. This is Benji, and I hope you are having a great day so far. Today's conversation is with Asad Zaman, CEO of Sales Talent Agency, and a really good friend of the show. For those of you that listen to our Ultimate Hiring Funnel series, you will remember him from episode three. For those of you that didn't listen to that series, I'll give you a bit of a rundown on Asad. So Sales Talent Agency is an international recruiting company, and they've helped acquire talent for over 1,500 companies over the years, working with Harley-Davidson, SAP, IBM, Salesforce, and Sonos, just to name a few of the big ones. Um, And I wanted to have him back on the show to talk about the current state of the workforce and what we can expect out of 2023 where the talent market is concerned. What effects will inflation and climbing interest rates have on employees and employers alike? Uh, How does a recession historically change the landscape of the labor market and how might it be different this time around? And what emerging trends should business owners stay in front of moving into 2023? We get into this and a ton of other really high level macro stuff that I hope you find as fascinating as I did. Hope you enjoy, let's dive in with Asad. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Asad, it's good to see you again, man. How are you? Good to see you, Benji. I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to this. Yeah, welcome back to the Contractor Evolution podcast. I, uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see we're doing a uh, an at home version of this. We're in Benji's uh, kitchen slash living room, living room slash home <laughs> office. Uh, Asad came down with something last week when we were in the meant to be in the studio, so we're we're doing this uh, a week later and uh don't mind the the setup i think the audio and the video looks and sounds really good so uh, i'm really glad that we could reschedule this because this is a really timely conversation i want to have with you the reason there's some urgency around this is um i wanted this podcast to release right around the new year because we're going to talk a little bit about um 2023 workforce trends if you will some macro stuff some some large scale patterns that I want our listeners and contractors, broadly speaking, to stay in front of. So, I'll I'll start. Let's start here. I uh, said, like, before we get into what's going to happen, let's talk about what has happened. Um, and I'll set up this question this way: We've been through a lot over the last two years. And I kind of put together a bit of a list for myself over the last 24 months. We've been through a pandemic, which led to some lockdowns, some scary headlines, a bunch of mandates, a bunch of travel restrictions. Uh, That led, you know, some pushback against that. That led to some disagreements among friend groups, among families. There's a whole bunch of social stuff that's changed. Then you look at the landscape of work. And there is uh, there is a whole bunch of work from home models which have become very popular. Some hybrid models which have become very popular. Uh, lots of big businesses having to become very flexible to meet the the needs of their workers. So there's that change, and then you kind of look at some economic stuff. Record levels of money printing. Uh, the Yahoo Finance number that I always quote is 
nine trillion with a T USD. That's not, you're not even talking about the Canadian market that was printed and injected. That's led to inflation. That has now more recently led to these rising interest rate hikes that have homeowners kind of feeling the burn, especially if you're on a variable rate. And then now the most recent thing is there's lots of red and red and down arrows when you look at uh, stock prices. There's still lots of volatility and 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 some more scary headlines about what we could be headed into next year. So that's my preamble. I want your take on like what effect has the history that we all just lived through had on the workforce? Got it. Okay. So let's start by just looking at. Um, what's taken place. Um, And then we can click in on its impact on the labor market. So as you said, so much has happened, right? So in reflection, this has been a three-year period where we have seen the cyclicality of the economy in a way that most generations haven't seen, right? Like usually um, you don't get to see a drop down and then a boom and then another drop down in such a compressed period of time. And we've had this and it's super interesting. And so what happened was this healthcare crisis, COVID uh, comes forward, and we have no idea what it is or how to deal with it. And so immediately, you see the effects of that on the economy and the way that we live lives. Um, We had to go into a lockdown, because if you don't have a vaccine for this disease, um, and the disease kills, then you got to hang out at home so that you don't get it and it doesn't spread, right? So we go into uh, lockdown which has an effect on businesses, which is remote work, which means that to do business, we now need to do it from home. And um, that's much easier said than done. Right. Um, immediately, you have this economic shutdown. It was this extreme drawdown in the economy. Um, but very interestingly, right then you saw government step in, you saw subsidies, you saw low interest rates, you saw quantitative easing, and a combination of these three things allowed for the economy to start booming again. And it boomed in a way that we'd never really seen before, right? Like in some sectors, the effect was significant, but overall, if you look at the economy as a whole, it was booming. But in the background, you had the effects of low interest rates and all these other things, which is inflation. So inflation by the end of last year had become a real issue. We knew that it was going to have to be dealt with. And the way that you deal with inflation is not nuanced. Um, The central banks who are responsible for controlling inflation have one blunt instrument. It's a hammer. And that's interest rates. And when you are going to have to increase interest rates, what you're essentially saying is, we have to cool down the economy because interest rates are the cost of capital. If the cost of capital is cheap, I'm going to see a lot more investment in the economy and growth. And when the cost of capital is high, then at that point, I'm going to see less investment and the economy is going to cool down and they have to cool the economy down. And so you started seeing a correction um, in, in the sectors that were the most vulnerable to this type of a change by the end of last year. But at this point, we see it across the board. And it's quite clear that uh, inflation is much harder to control than people thought because it's so entrenched and it's entrenched because of um, a number of issues, supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine, all these things have come together to make inflation quite problematic. And so right now we're in a really um, tough economic environment, quite the opposite to last year, right? Like if you compare last year, um, give and take the same time to where we are today, it's almost day and night in terms of the difference economically speaking. And so during this period, 
um, you've seen the labor market go through a number of changes. Um, on a very high level, if we just talk about demand and supply, immediately when the pandemic hit, what did you see? You saw demand drop completely because we have to adjust to working from home, forget hiring people, forget doing everything. We need to know how to run our businesses in this new way. So we're going to stop everything else and focus on this one thing. Um, and then when the economy was booming, you saw really high demand for talent because there was a lot of growth in the market. And to be able to capitalize on the opportunity that had presented itself, you have to hire. And so companies were hiring across the board. And the interesting thing about talent is that it's one of those things where supply in the short term stays flat because you can't increase the supply of people, right? Um, I can't bring in 7,000 new CROs or VPs of sales into Vancouver. We've got what we've got. So if demand right. is high and supply stays flat, price goes up. Price in this instance is uh, is compensation. And then you're now in a market where the economy has been cooled down um, and because of that, you should see demand drop and supply become more available. Um, what's interesting is that we're learning that the effects of this economy are not exactly what we thought, or the effects of uh, an economy cooling down might not be exactly what we thought, because generally speaking, you would think that high interest rates and this type of economic environment lead to a, a, a much higher unemployment rate. And but we haven't hasn't. seen that. You haven't seen that. What's mm. happened is demand has dropped. And so it actually has a sequencing uh, that one has to recognize. The first order effect is on demand. Demand first drops and then supply gets affected, right? Mm. But in terms of unemployment rates, because then people are laying off. Now, there have been layoffs and there have been a lot of layoffs in tech. But even in tech, in all of this year, 130,000 people have been laid off. Um, and in North America alone, 9.9 .9 million people work in that sector, and there are 925,000 open jobs in that sector. So it's still not what one thought it would be. Um, mm. uh, so you've got a labor market that is quite strong. I pulled some data for you right before this. Um, it's new, so it's not top of mind. Um, there are still 10.3 million open job uh, jobs in the U.S. at the moment in October, uh, which is a number that was that is higher than the number of in August. And the the, the, uh, the layoff rate is 1% in October. In 2019, the average, and 2019 is important to note because this was before any of this took place, yes. right? It was an economy that was fine. Everybody was doing business. There was no issues. Even then, the average was 1.9% a month. And so our layoff rate is lower right now than it was in 2019. So I, to me, this is a really interesting labor market. And this labor market, if we click into it and we think of it specifically from your uh, side of the economy, there are some really interesting things that we can note. We can talk about them on a very high level right now and we can poke around wherever you feel fed. Um, the first thing that we've noticed is the effect on sales. So contractors and construction companies have predominantly sold in person the roles used to be called outside salesperson, right? Like yeah. that was literally the title. The title reflected how we sold. Um, and what's happened because of COVID is first there was a lockdown. So you just couldn't do outside sales. But right now the world has opened up a little bit more, right? Like there's all of this debate about should we be remote? Should we be hybrid? What is it? The reality is we're figuring that out and there, there's schools of thought on each side and we can talk about that debate as well. But 
What is fair to say is that in every sector, there are a significant number of companies that are at least saying we're going to have some level of flexibility here. And what that means is that while we can now go back and sell in person, the people we're selling to are less available than they were before. Mm -hmm. And that has an effect, right? Architects are uh, less available. Um, uh, the, the buyers of our services are just less available um, in person. And so that has an effect. The other thing is that to be able to now sell in this environment, we are having to adjust to leveraging tools that we haven't necessarily um, had to use in the past. Now, mm. if you compare that to a sector like software, the software sector is super interesting because over there, they were doing a form of virtual sales for quite some time. A long time. If the deal was mm -hmm. long time, right? Like if the deal was a small deal or a mid-sized deal, they predominantly sold it virtually, meaning they knew what Zoom was. They knew how to uh, not just use it, but use it well. Um, whereas in our world, we didn't have to use these tools. These are all new things for us. These are new habits that we have to develop. And the thing is to develop this new habit, we have to break an old habit. And old habits are hard to break anyway, mm -hmm. but the hardest habits to break are the ones that have had a positive reinforcement loop associated with them. Example, if a smoker, a smoker knows that it's not good for them, right? And because of that, when you get to the point where you're like, I need to quit it, you, you have a higher probability, I think, of quitting it because you know this thing is horrible for you. Compare that to a habit that's made you hundreds of thousands of dollars in your life. That habit is much harder to build, right? Like you bought your house because of that. You put your kid in school because right. of that. And yeah. now you have to break that habit and learn and develop these new muscles much harder to do. So that's the first thing that I, I think is really important to highlight in terms of the labor market, specifically in your space. The other thing, but you have a question. <laughs> I do have a question, but keep going. I've got it noted here. We'll circle back. You're on a, you're on a good roll. What's the other oh, thing? Yeah. So the other thing is that the labor market has become a lot tighter. Um, and, so, and the reason for that is that there's one sector that has impacted the overall labor market. Um, and we haven't seen that happen many times before. So the sector that experienced the most growth uh, over the last couple of years was the software and technolo technology sector, right? Right. And there are many reasons for that. But that sector was was booming in a way that we hadn't seen before. And they had to hire a lot of people. Well, because of the type of growth that they were experiencing and the number of people they had to hire, they couldn't just look at people that had been working within their sector. They had to look elsewhere. And so they started shopping from the same talent pool that many other companies were looking at. And to all talent pools, the software and technology sector is fundamentally very interesting and exciting to build a career within. Partly right. because it's innovation. You know, you're changing the world and who doesn't want to play a part in that? It's but cool. It's cool. I'm, I'm selling software. Like, I'm, I'm in SaaS that? sales. Totally. Yeah, um, exactly. But now add to the fact that it's also attractive for very logical reasons beyond that, which number one is that these companies grow at a rapid pace. Upward mobility in an organization has uh, has a lot to do with how fast that organization is growing because it, that indicates how many opportunities there will be for growth, right? And so these companies that are growing at a rapid pace, they are going to offer you the ability to move up in your career a lot faster than in any other sector. And because of the amount of hiring that they have to do, they spend a lot more time looking at the data associated with hiring, especially compensation, and are able to provide 
what is a truly competitive compensation in that moment in time and other sectors struggle with this. So there's that. So what what you're saying, just just so I'm super clear on that point, it sounds like what you're saying is uh, over the last two years, the software and technology space has boomed. And I... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe some of the reasons for that are, you know, on, on one end, the demand for uh, technology. If you think of the eyeballs on screens, just that simple idea, eyeballs on screens through COVID, that's good for software and technology. Working from the the ease with which you can work from home, software and technology, that's good. Um, and then the other thing is like the cheapness of money through this period. You look at low interest rates, mm. makes investment very, very easy. So a lot of these, and I, you know, if you follow markets to uh, at all, like you would know. I mean, I have friends in this space who have had valuations on their businesses that are. <laughs> I hope they don't hear this. Insane. I mean, they're yeah, doing amazing wow. work. Your product's amazing. This isn't an insult. I'm just saying they are. They were handing out bags and bags for these cool tools and softwares and technologies. So but where I was going with that is that has led to an increase. And as a result of the growth that that sector has experienced, they have essentially gone outside of their their talent market and gobbled it up from others. Exactly. Um, you know, if you want to click in on what exactly happened in that sector, it's super interesting. So when when the pandemic hit and the lockdown happened, immediately there was this realization across the board that we need to buy more technology to just mm. be able to operate our businesses in this environment. And if we want to thrive, we need to buy even more. So on the B2B technology side, you saw demand for those reasons. And at the same time, um, and I don't know why this happened, but McKinsey published some research a while back which showed how much better companies were at buying and implementing technology um, in 2020 and 21 compared to before. In some cases, they were 25 times, not 25%, 25 times faster at picking and implementing a a new technology than previously. And so that shows up on demand and revenue numbers in in a software company. On the consumer technology side, you and I, and our parents and everybody else we know were doing things that we would do in the analog world digitally now because we had to. You had to buy your tissue paper online. And when you do things online for so long, um, you create new habits. And right. so you saw this acceleration of, consu- uh, of comfort around digital experiences on the consumer tech side, which showed up in their demand and revenue numbers and their growth numbers. And so when you see those signals, and it's important to note that these companies, they are built in a very interesting way. They're not profit-minded most of the time. What they're trying to do is, we found this problem that we're solving and it's an interesting problem. We're, we're early to the game. And so if we can show the right signals, especially revenue growth and demand, then investors will give us money that we can use to grow our businesses, capture market share, and make profit later. Now, if capital is cheap and the investors are seeing all of these signals, what are they going to do? They're going to deploy capital in that sector like they've never deployed before. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. If you look at private equity numbers, if you look at venture capital numbers, the jump from 2019 to 2020 and 21 was astronomical. It wasn't a marginal jump up yeah. in investment rates. It was a leap uh, forward. And so where does that money go? The number one cost in these companies is employees. They have to hire to achieve what they have to achieve. And so that's why you saw 
its effect on the labor market because they had to hire at a rate that no one had ever hired before. And since there are only so many people that have the exact experience you're looking for, what does it lead to? It leads to creativity around hiring and they start hiring from pools that other companies thought were their own pools, but are now right. everybody's pool. So if we're trying to understand kind of where we sit right now, uh, one big data point that can't be ignored is the potential bite that the software and technology space has taken out of the talent pools of the rest of us, so to speak. The other thing that you mentioned, I don't... I want to move on to some other questions, but I just think it's a very interesting comment you made. The incentive structure for those businesses is quite literally the opposite end of the spectrum as ours. Yeah. Contractors yeah. are extremely PNL focused. They yeah. like how much money we make this year matters a lot. This concept of like, oh, we're pre-revenue. It's like, what, the, yeah, what no, does that even there's mean? There's no such thing. What, it's what does that even now. mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah, like give me a break. So it's just that's a kind of an interesting thing to, to think about for a second. Our, you know, our businesses are much more. Um, you know, we, we can we cannot survive on. Uh, funding. Uh, it's not a super hot uh, investment market yet, although I think that could change over the next decade or so. And so it's just kind of a, that's an interesting point you made about the different incentive structures that we that we operate under. I want to go back businesses, to- businesses, um, just to touch on that for a second, because most yeah, sure. of these businesses are not compounding, right? Like the revenue they generate in one year, a lot of businesses start the next year at zero again. Yeah. Whereas these software businesses hold on to last year's revenue and are adding on top of it. So they're compounding businesses, which is why they can go and raise money um, and for the reasons that we mentioned, whereas other businesses struggle with that. But I think the advantage of a business that is run and that is profit-led growth in a way, right? Like I will make profit and invest that profit to grow my business. It does lead to discipline. It leads to discipline because that profit either could be taken out as a dividend and go into my pocket, or I'm going to invest it in my business. So I'm going to really think through, is this the right investment? And I'm going to try my best to minimize risk with, uh, with the investments that I'm making. Now, the challenge that comes forward from there is that that risk minimization leads to conservative thinking, right? Mm. We become really conservative sometimes in terms of how we are thinking about growing our business. And we don't right. understand the ramifications of being overly conservative. Because as we said a little while earlier, your employees want growth in their careers, right? And if you as a business leader have not figured out how to grow your business at an appropriate enough rate, where at least for the, the people you want to hold on to, you're able to offer some level of growth, what's going to happen? You're going to lose those people. So growth is not necessarily... A nice to have. It's not just like, oh, I, I'm happy with this number. You're happy with this number today because you've got these people that are helping you get there. What happens when you can't hold on to these people because you haven't been able to grow the business and offer them growth? That becomes a huge challenge. Well, uh, what's the term? A, a rising tide, you know, raises all ships. A grow, a quickly growing business uh, has has lots more room at the top than a slow growing business and so you can talk about development meetings and training programs and and building capacity and 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 sort of creating a career path internally and we do and that's important but the other sort of variable here is like the rate of change of your business the rate of growth of your business is hugely indicative of how much space there's going to be for high performers to grow into in the future i want to go back to this question about um 
let's go back to the work from home thing for a sec. Like if we're saying you're saying that uh, this has created new habits and sort of normalized ways of doing things that were not normal before. Um, we are, you know, people are getting more comfortable doing digital sales in the construction space. I think I think there's I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a complete switch anytime soon. There's still a lot of stuff done in person, but you should have that option. We're, we have a lot of people who are using VAs who have hired office managers, a lot of their administrative roles, even like even like uh, certain like operations managers, depending on the shape of the business are being done remote. My question is, should we be sort of retooling our systems, uh, our software, our computers, uh, our SOPs? Should we be retooling our systems in such a way that allow for a hybrid or remote model moving forward? Is this going to be a is this going to be a permanent trend that we need to get comfortable with, or is that a flash in the pan that happened through COVID that's going to be all but forgotten in a couple of years? It's such an interesting question. I am not the expert um, when it comes to what is the right way to run a business, right? I can tell you how I think about it, but there are so many schools of thought here and so many opinions. And I think leaders have to really do the work and research and then make a call on what they think is right for them and their businesses. We have decided to be remote first. We have two offices, one in Vancouver and one in Toronto. Um, and so we've said to people that if you want to go into those offices and use them, you can. Those offices are available to you. And there are a number of people that choose to go there, um, some on a, on a everyday basis, others um, a couple of times a week. Um, so they are a form of hybrid. But within mm -hmm. hybrid, you've also got two types, right? You've got hybrid where we have an office, use it when you want to use it. And the other is, we have an office and we're all going to decide to come in on certain days so that we're there at the same time, right? Because we think we have to be there. We're not in that second school of thought. We're just, we have the offices, whoever wants to use them, use them as you feel fit. Um, and then there's remote. And then there is work from, uh, uh, from the office all the time. Mm. I think one thing that is very clear, and I will debate anyone on this, is that productivity does not suffer by not being in the office. That was one of the lessons of the pandemic. Like productivity actually went up when everybody was locked in. Now, part mm. of it was that we were locked in and we had nothing else to do. Sure. Um, but <laughs> the other part was that people just were quite productive at home. They were less distracted. There were less people to talk to. Um, so they were able to get the work done. In the past, the, 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 the pushback used to be that for our team to be productive, they need to be in the office. And I think we've learned that people will be productive uh, wherever they're working. Uh, as long as you're hiring conscientious people, you're hiring adults, right? And you figured out how to qualify uh, for conscientiousness and for the fact that they are an adult who's going to take this seriously. As long as you have those type of people, they'll get the work done wherever they have to do it. Now, on top of that, though, if they're going to get the work done wherever they are working, they've learned that lesson themselves too. But working from home gives them time back. The average person, let's say, is commuting an hour a day, right? Five hours a week, 20 hours a month, 240 hours sure. a year. Give them 240 hours a year back. They'll cook more food at home if they want. They'll sleep in a little bit more. They'll go to the gym a little bit more. Like they will do things that have an effect on the satisfaction I have with my life and with the quality of my life. And mm -hmm. that becomes 
something that is very hard to take away from a person. If you go to a person who was as productive at home as they were in the office and you, but is now a little bit healthy, a little bit more rested, has better relationships with their family and friends because they can spend more time with them. And you go and tell them, no, you must be in the office five days a week. You're going to get pushback. You might get mm. pushback and you might say, no, this is a line in the sand. We must do it this way. It is our way or the highway. And what will happen is they'll start looking for a job where that's available. If you look at the data, one of the number one reasons why people are moving jobs is because they want to work in an organization that treats them like adults, that gives them appropriate flexibility, et cetera. So for me, I think it's very hard. Um, I couldn't win the argument. I couldn't steal man uh, having to be in the office five days a week. Now, I can understand that for certain types of organizations, a hybrid approach where it is prescriptive hybrid, um, mm. let's just call it prescriptive hybrid, um, that makes sense. And that usually, to me, is a company that has a team or teams that are developing something. So they're developing a product, they're developing software, they have to collaborate. And those things, I think, they, they really benefit from proximity. Um, even in sales, there are a lot of benefits. And so in those instances, I can see it made sense. Now, how mm -hmm. should a comp where does a company land? I think that's a choice they have to make. But I think the right choice is somewhere between remote and prescriptive hybrid. I don't think the right choice is back in the office five days a week. I think that is a mistake. Hence, to your question, if the right choice is somewhere on the spectrum of remote to prescriptive hybrid, you must then look at your organization and say, do we have the infrastructure and the tools to be able to operate our businesses efficiently and effectively in this new environment? That was a lesson a lot of companies learned when we had to work at home 100% of the time. We realized that we were not set up to do so, which is why there was so much demand for software. And so companies really have to look at themselves and say, do, are we set up the right way? And this has to be an ongoing exercise because yeah. there, if you think about the start of the pandemic, everybody was sitting in badly lit rooms. They had shitty cameras. They didn't, <laughs> you, know, you would, some you would still be on, are. Yeah. Some still are. Yeah. Uh, you would be on calls where like, they didn't even know how to like place the camera. You would just see like half the face and you'd see all these weird things happen, right? And now you, you see that happen a lot less. And mm. that's partly because people have gotten better at using those tools and partly because the tools have gotten a lot better as well. And I think every year we need to look and see what's out there that can help us operate our businesses efficiently and effectively in this environment. Well, I think that this is uh, this is so much great stuff to dive in there. I, you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of our listener and someone's someone's listening or watching this, someone, uh, maybe many people are going to push back and say, I hear you, but like, hold on a second. I build homes for a living. I do landscaping for a living. I, I paint, uh, I paint office buildings for a living. There's only so much that we can do remote and they're absolutely right. We're not, right. we're not, we're not, uh, you know, building homes through zoom anytime soon. And so, um, to, to those of you who are in that situation, which is all of you, what we're talking about here is analyzing your business and looking at the roles where this is possible. And there'd be lots of there'd be lots of managerial roles, there'd be lots of coordinator roles, uh, lots of marketing, potentially some of your sales roles. Um, most of the positions in your company away from the actual job site certainly can have some part of it with a remote 
or a hybrid model incorporated. I, that is possible. The technology yeah. is there. Your leadership skills are there. However, and this is a big however, I really want to emphasize something that Asa just said. Just because you can doesn't mean that you will be successful at it right away. And I have noticed just, a, uh, you know, we, we've we always been, I mean, I've, I've been working from a computer for six years now. So this, when, when people were going through the whole like, oh, how do we use Zoom thing? How do we, how do we sell uh, from afar? All these questions, I was like, man, this is like, you guys don't know how to do this. Um, no, I'm, I'm blessed. And I took that for granted and people had to learn. Um, what I would say is that there was something you, you said just quickly and we moved on is there are certain types of work and there are certain stages, I think, of a business's trajectory where things become very difficult to do through computers. So if you are at a stage where you're innovating a lot in your business, you're changing a lot in your business proximity matters a great deal like i can I, I don't think it's i think it's fine for us for me to share this on behalf of breakthrough academy there are elements of what we do on the marketing front that are be, that are very difficult very challenging to do remote and so what we'll do is we do these little work sprints where we'll get together mm-hmm. for three days and we're like book an airbnb this is you know this is what we need to have done over the next 72 hours we have the right people we have the right resources we need to get this finished um when we go down to shoot this podcast, there's often quite a bit of work that we attach to the front end or the back end of that where we get together and we're able to move through things. But there's certain types of problems that become really, really difficult to work through through a computer. And so I just would be like, it's not it's not all that it's cracked up to be. It does. It is great. You know, you, it sounds like you're very bullish on remote work because uh, you can see you can see uh, increases in productivity. I just would say, like, it depends on the role. It depends on the business and where it's at. 100%. Uh, and it does need to be it does need to be managed. You can't like I remember going through the pandemic and a lot of people who are kind of like frustrated and upset were kind of saying, hey, like, you know, uh, I remember reading a blog. Some some person was saying, like, my dad's 54 and has been doing, you know, this blue collar job his whole life. You're just going to like send him home with a MacBook and he's all of a sudden going to be like, be pro, like get real. Like, you know, this person needs training, needs retooling. Like this is not, this is not as simple as just like an overnight switch. And so I think anyway, I'm being long winded. We're, we're kind of grappling with all that right now. And I, I would say if you're, you know, if you're wanting to be ahead of the curve as a construction or trades business in 2023, one of the things that you should look at is offering a remote or hybrid model where possible for the roles in your organization because everyone else is. I want to I want to move into um, another question here, which uh, is to do with inflation. So mm. the last time that I checked, which was a couple weeks ago, the CPI out of the U.S. was eight point two or eight point five, eight and change percent. Um, what's interesting about that bundle is it doesn't include housing. So when you look at 8.1%, you're like, oh, wow, that's a lot. It's like, it's actually way more, guys. It's way more. Rents are way up, which is not included in that CPI. If you ride a variable rate mortgage, it's it's been an absolute roller coaster ride. I've seen how much it's gone up. So here's my question. Uh, Yeah, groceries are a little bit more expensive. Gas is a little bit more expensive. I always think that stuff like that is just political speak. I think I think really where people are feeling the burn is on some of these bigger expense categories like housing, vehicles, transportation, etc. Net net said things are getting more expensive quite quickly. What impact 
What do rising costs, what's the effect that that has on employees and on employers? Are people going to be asking for more money? Do we need to be prepared for that? What is that? What is this, this uh, increase in costs? What is that? What effect does that have on the talent pool? Here's something interesting. And this is my observation. I haven't done really deep research on this, but the data set I have is large enough where, where I can feel confident speaking about it. I actually think compensation inflation or the rise of compensations um, has nothing to do with real inflation. Meaning, I don't think because we have inflation, comp goes up. I actually think these two things aren't related. Actually, they could have a different type of relationship. Compensation has gone up significantly um, but after the pandemic, right? Like we're, in our world, um, we've been around for about 15 years. And for about 13 years, Compensation was trending under inflation from an increased perspective. Um, if you were hiring, it was a growing. It was growing slower than inflation. Than was. inflation. Okay. If you Got were it. hiring an outside, uh, sorry, a, a salesperson who's straight out of university, junior salesperson. Sure. For those thirteen years, it was give and take forty-ish thousand dollars. For that entire period, it didn't really dramatically change. In our world, we have seen compensation jump by 20 to 40% in a year um, between, you know, at, from last year to let's say the midpoint of this year. That is a huge jump. Um, people are coming out of university are now making $60,000 base salaries. They were making 40000 not too long ago, right? And so the reason for that has very little to do with inflation in the world and everything to do with the demand and supply of talent. Compensation inflation is tied to demand and supply of talent. How so? Correct. Well, when the demand for talent outweighs supply, as we said earlier, since you cannot increase the supply of people, we haven't figured that shit out yet. What happens? Price goes up and the price are, uh, in this equation is compensation. And so we were in a labor market where demand outweighed supply so significantly that compensation jumped so significantly. Now, um, the interesting thing about compensation inflation is it's one of those uh, it's one of the rare things where you can't take it back. Meaning, gas prices come down, right? Eds might get cheaper, milk might get cheaper. People, you can't say let's go back to where we were at. That's never going to happen. So this stays. Now, in terms of inflation, like what what does this inflation have? What effect does this have on the labor market? Well, there are a few things that come to mind. The first is that while people have benefited in many cases from an increase in compensation because of the labor market dynamics, the strength of that increase has decreased, meaning that without inflation, that 20, 30, 40% increase could mean such a change in lifestyle for me. Well, if inflation is 10% and my comp went up by 20%, that is not as effect, uh, impactful, right? If inflation keeps coming up, then it's actually going to balance itself out. And so, so I think there's going to be pressure on people um, because of inflation, because everything they're buying is getting more expensive. Mm. And that pressure... Um, pressure is one of those things where some pressure in life is good, right? But if it's too much, then it can be quite detrimental. And if it gets too much, and I, you know, it's scratching at the surface of too much right now, um, and you can quantify that by looking at things like saving rates, right? Those saving rates are coming down. Um, and, and the consumers, especially in North America, had banked uh, save, record savings after the pandemic because of things like the subsidies. Well, right. 
if if that's uh, when for the labor market, um, they are going to have more pressure on them. And if that pressure becomes detrimental, it's going to affect their ability to work with a clear mind, right? Like that pressure is going to follow you everywhere. It's going to follow you to the gym. It's going to follow you to work. It's going to follow you at the dinner table. It's going to follow you everywhere. And if I'm a company, if I'm the employer, then I, I'm stressed about that. I'm stressed about the stress that my people are going to have sure. because of uh, inflation. On the other side, the cost of goods that companies have to buy to fulfill whatever their promises to their clients are have also gone up, right? Like Massively. your clients and your mm-hmm. space have seen a significant margin compression because of the higher cost of materials. And so now if you put these two things together, last year we saw comp go up, this year we saw materials go up, you put them together and our cost of doing business has gone up. And what do you do when your costs go up? You have to balance it out um, in, in the price of your product, in the price of your service. You pass it along it, to the consumer. You do. But can you do that in a recession? Can you do that when the economy is where it's at today? You can't. Much harder, right? When demand is hard to generate, now you don't go and tell them, but we also don't charge you 15% more than we were charging people before. That message is very hard to land. um, And it's hard to land also because other companies that are suffering a lot more with demand than let's say you might be, um, they're going to be willing to do business at a very, very limited margin, sometimes even at break even just to survive this period. And so now your 10% increase seems like 30% more than your competitor that's just trying to break even and survive. And hence, I think the pressure on businesses because of inflation is going to be super significant and is going to cause a lot of heartache and uh, headaches next year. Mm. Interesting. Let's let's talk about next year for a second. Uh, you know, lots of scary headlines, which, as I say on this show a lot, uh, you know, don't live and die by what the news says. I mean, these outlets are incentivized on every level to scare the shit out of you and grab your attention. So you take everything that you read with a grain of salt. But I was prepping for this and I cruise to the Economist every once in a while, and there was, you know, the 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 blurb was basically uh, a recession in 2023 is all but guaranteed. All indicators uh-huh. say we're going to be there. This is likely what's going to happen. Here's how to prep for it. Blah blah blah. Um, as it relates to the talent market, how have recessions historically impacted talent markets, and in what ways is this time around? different are there factors that make this kind of unique than say historical examples very good question um so is there going to be a recession there are more and more people that are putting the that are taking the stance that it is guaranteed right Mm -hmm. like um a little while ago um when the the inflation reading not the last one but the one before that when that was higher than expected, um, Bloomberg came forward with um, a statement that recession risk in the next 12 months is 100%. They gave <laughs> themselves no room for right. like, the soft landing, right? Confident. And until before that, there was this very lively debate that will there be a soft landing or will there be a recession? And then there's also this nuanced element of it that if there is a recession, what type of recession? I think that's really important to actually click in on. So... What's happened since then is that 
in interest inflation has shown to be much harder to control than people thought it was going to be. Way um, harder. And so, so the Federal Reserve last just a few weeks ago made a statement: higher rates for longer. That was Powell. And what does that mean? Well, he's essentially saying it's it, it, we're going to have to be a lot more aggressive to control inflation, and I am willing to be more aggressive for longer with the risk of overcorrecting and landing up in a recession because mm-hmm. I have tools like quantitative easing to pull us out of that but if inflation gets out of hand I don't have tools to bring us back from that without causing a lot more pain and I've been very clear he's been very clear this is priority number 1 I'm willing to put us through pain and suffering to make it happen 100%. and his action you know if I can remove my, you know, myself, and it's, you know, it's, living through this is an interesting time. You, you you do feel it. You're like, wow, okay, yeah, this is this is real. But if I can remove myself and just look at look at this almost as a sentient being, uh, sorry, not a sentient being, an omnipotent being, I'm actually <laughs> for what he's doing. I think this is, we need this. This is going to get, you know, the There's amount no other we, choice. This is good. Okay, it sucks because yeah. the mortgage has gone up X amount in three months. It's shocking, but net net, we do need this. So I'm actually like. Hey, you know, Jerome, you're doing a you're doing a good job of this in a very very tricky situation. Um, but no, like what you're you know, when people when the when central bank say they're going to do something, you should tend to believe them. You have to plan as if they're going to do what they're saying. It's insane to think that they're going to do something different. Like they're saying that they're going they're going to cool the economy down. Now, what you could say is that for a long time, the Fed said 0.75% basis point increases in the interest rate are not going to be the norm. And they became the norm. Why? Because data presented itself that said, this is what we need to do. And what I like there is that they were flexible enough to say the right thing to do is this, even though we thought we wouldn't have to do it. Sure. Meaning there is a world in which they're saying higher rates for longer, but they haven't said how high and for how long. And we might assume it's it's X and it might end up being Y because... Uh, we have a couple of really good inflation readings. Like there, there, there's a debate to be had over that. But the reality is that they have set higher rates for longer. And I think what we have to read from that is that the chance of recession happening next year has increased dramatically in right. the last three months than it was present in the nine months prior to that. That is a fair thing to say. So then... How much is that risk? Well, Bloomberg says 100%, but Goldman Sachs has come up with research that says it's 35%. Sure. And so it's it it might be there, it might not. Um, at 35%, what they're saying is that we believe that there's a soft landing to be had. And so I don't know which way it goes. Um, but what I do think is, and this is now me just like, and I'm not an economist or the, sure. the expert over here. I think if there is a recession, it's not going to be the world's worst recession. I, and there are reasons for that. Consumer spending is still really strong. Um, if you, I was talking to my brother recently, and he, he works in finance, he's in the US, and he travels a lot. And he was telling me about how every airport he goes to, the amount of activity he's seen at those airports, two-hour lineups to rent yeah. a car, right? Like just mm-hmm. not, full-on busy. When you are looking at the savings rate, we've still got 75% of the savings that we've banked up during the pandemic. We still have those. So the consumer is strong. um, And also the labor market is resilient. Usually, and this comes to your question where you said, what's the effect on the labor market? Well, traditionally in a recession, what would you see? Really high unemployment rate, right? 
Um, and you could see, you saw that in 2008. You saw that even when the pandemic first hit, you saw millions of people lose their jobs immediately because the economy had shut down. Um, and I think what's interesting is we're learning that that has happened almost all the time, but that is not necessarily the only thing that could happen. Uh, meaning that the first place that a cool economy is going to show up from a labor market perspective is demand. And demand has dropped. It has dropped dramatically, um, but it has dropped dramatically from a high that was also a dramatic high. And so it's important to then contextualize the drop in demand against supply to ask the question, is this market, a labor market, still competitive um, or has the employer gained all the leverage back? Because it's a leverage game as well, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if it's a high demand, low supply labor market, the employee has the leverage. Whereas if it's a really low demand and very high supply market, the employer has the leverage. Where does leverage show up? Discussions like compensation, right? Sure. Um, so, so that's, to me, I, I've seen demand drop dramatically, but it's still in a spot where it is competitive. Um, and it is competitive for a number of reasons. One, demand is still high enough for it to be competitive compared to supply. But in a market like this, your bar for hiring has to go up as well. And that balances it out to some extent. You cannot not hire top talent in this market. You just can't. Like You can't take that risk because business is harder right now than it was last year. Last year, a lot of companies um, were seeing demand coming to them at a velocity where their sales team had become order takers. That was the right thing to do, right? It was to create the most efficient, effective way to navigate this demand through our process, close deals, grow them, et cetera. Well, right now, that type of demand isn't there. We don't have to create demand. We don't have to evangelize. We don't have to be tenacious in a way that we haven't had to be for some time. We don't mm -hmm. have to create new muscles. Um, even pre-2020, the economy was good. We mm -hmm. haven't had to sell in this market for a mm -hmm. while. And mm -hmm. so I think your bar has to go higher. The elements that you're qualifying for are different as well. Like your, you, the, the amount of attention you're going to give characteristics like resiliency and adaptability and creativity is going to be much higher right now than it was previously, right? And so for companies, hiring is still difficult, but... If we land up in a recession, you will see a more softening of the labor market. And it'll get easier that, to hire, in other words. It, it has to, right? Like it has to get easier than it is today. I'm not saying it'll be a walk in the park, but it'll get a little bit easier. Um, but if you find it too easy, you're talking to the wrong people. That's just a nice rule of thumb in this market. Secondly, if you are hiring, you can really go and try to get the type of talent that you might not have had the opportunity to get before. Mm -hmm. And if you're able, this type of a market will give you the opportunity to upgrade the level of talent that you have in your organization. So there are challenges and there are opportunities. Um, some can leverage um, the opportunities, others can't. Um, but th that's what's going to play out. At least that's my opinion, my humble yeah. opinion. It's um, this stuff is just so difficult to have. Uh, these are all in these are all opinions, and that's it's a good like. So take everything we say with a grain of salt. I my take on this is 
uh, and I'm talking specifically about the construction and trades market as we head into a downturn, uh, quote unquote downturn, we'll see. I'm not an economist, but I am quite optimistic about our little space, our little niche compared to others. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is the housing crisis in the U.S. is so pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a guest on the other day, and I've quoted this a few times since because it's a great line, but he, he uh, his name is Garrett Moore. He goes, the housing crisis is so pronounced that the top 100 builders in the U.S. would have to double their capacity for a decade to catch up just with current demand. That's not even factoring in. That's not even factoring forecasts for where demand Shit. goes. It's major. That's wild. You have you have uh, the political discourse around housing being a human right. This is something that we need to look out for. It's all very delicate. It's hard to say, but I I could see a scenario where if you if you build buildings, you work on buildings, you fix them, you beautify them, you repair them or maintain them in some way, you are quite well positioned no matter what. Nothing is 100% insulated, but I'd say there's maybe a little bit of a protective barrier between us and everything else that goes on in a worst case scenario. Again, 100%, that's just my opinion. Take it with a grain of salt, but... I think that we might have, we might be a little bit, uh, might be in a slightly better situation than lots of other industries, lots of other niches. And uh, the effect that that has on your ability to recruit is really, really hard to quantify. But what you're saying is broadly speaking, when things get, when you see big downturns, unemployment goes up, your leverage as an employer increases and talent that previously wasn't available becomes more available. Yeah, that, that's the fundamental. Like if you look at it economically, right? Like that's what should play out. What's interesting though, is that people think that's what should be happening right now. And some think that's what, where we are today. And that's not the reality. It's not. Today's market is still a competitive labor market where it's hard to hire great people. It's hard to uh, hold on to great people. And part, you know why it's also really hard to hire great people? Because you can only go after top talent in this market to be able to fund, uh, to be able to navigate the next 12 to 18 months, right? 12 to 18 months being the period where the economy is going to be somewhat challenging, whether it's a recession or not. Um, mm. And those people, if they're gainfully employed, what are all of us trying to do in this market? Manage risk, right? And what is managing risk for an individual? It's not leaving a stable job to go and take a new job, right? It's definitely not that. And so it's hard to even get those people. So the labor market today is a challenging labor market and it's a complicated labor market and it's not what most people think it is. Um, And uh, to me, it's quite fascinating. But if we keep trending downwards, then yes, you will see a softening of that market. Um, And for those companies that might be in market to hire, um, there will be opportunities to be had. Um, To your point, I think what you were saying about... um, your sector and its ability to be resilient in the, let's call that medium term, right? Like five to 10 years. I think I feel very bullish for a lot of sectors over that time period. I think the challenge is going to be the 12 to 18 month period, specifically the next 12 months are going to be challenging. And I think, and I think the way that entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders and managers have to be thinking about this period is the following. You have to manage your risk in this market, you have to, like it would be wild and crazy not to, but you also have to do it in a way 
that allows you to capitalize on the upswing when the opening presents itself. That's how these markets work. Markets are cyclical. If you read up on the last 200 years, you will see this, right? Like, boy, it comes down and goes back up. And you kind of have to be able to navigate this by feeling as little pain as possible. But when this upswing, present, this opening presents itself, you have to be well set up to truly capitalize on that. There's a saying, uh, it was Senna the driver. He said, you can't overtake 15 cars when it's sunny weather, but you can when it's raining. You do that as a business by making, by thinking through what are the things we need to do to be able to capitalize on that upswing, having that conversation and making certain investments and moves that allow you to do that. And a lot of people, they get very, they get very microscopic on the very near term. And they sometimes overcorrect in terms of risk management. Sure. You know, one such example being that they lay off way more people than, um, than they had to. Or they cut all the technologies that they're using. We're going analog. And then when the market presents an opening, your business is not either doesn't have enough people or doesn't have the efficiencies that those technologies were giving you to be able to capitalize on the upswing. That's a very interesting comment you just made about playing it too tight, too conservative. There's a large company that we uh, we were partners with a number of years ago. Um, I obviously won't mention the name, but I, I remember when COVID happened, it was like widespread layoffs, like like you know executive teams cut in half and a whole bunch of frontline workers greatly reduced. And then this is at the beginning of COVID. And then six months later, there was a real oh shit moment for them because everything was booming and their stuff was flying off the shelf. And they were like, yeah. we have fucked ourselves. So it's, it's, it's very interesting about the being very fluid, paying a lot of attention, reacting to what the market does and being ready to pounce on the other side of this because – Going back to your cycles, um, I'm reading Ray Dalio's. Uh, oh, I'm rereading. I'm rereading uh, Principles for a Changing World Order, which is just. I mean, it's man, it's so good. And he's just he's talking about the stuff we're going through. He's like, guys, this is not new. Just no one lives long yeah. enough to see to see these patterns. Here's what here's what it looked like in England. Here's what it looked like in the Netherlands. This is what it's looking like for the U.S. right now. But this is the way it goes. And so. Uh, you know, to, to use a quote of a friend of mine, uh, ride the wave, baby. That's kind of a good policy to have. I, let's, let's move on here to some, to some, um, some practical steps. Uh, so like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen if we, as we've made abundantly clear. We certainly have some takes and everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Um, Let's just say no matter what conditions happen, what would be some good advice for contractors to become a talent magnet in 2023 or to stay a talent magnet in 2023? What should people be thinking about uh, in order to do that? I think the first thing that comes to mind, um, when you say magnet, right? Like I think of two things. I think of attracting people, right? Um, but I also think of holding on to people. Sure. And I think we sometimes don't do enough um, to do that second part. Um, we take people for granted. Um, you know, a simple way of thinking through that is most people get significant jumps in compensation when they move from one company to another. Right. Like for the people, if you look back at these 20 year careers and you say, what were the moments where you really jumped in comp? It wasn't when I moved from this role to this role in a company it was when I moved from this company to that company. Yeah. Very few companies are actually 
realizing that when I lose this, when I don't give this person what this person deserves in the market, they will leave and get that somewhere else. But when and I I'm going to pay, I'm gonna need to spend that much on the replacement anyway. Exactly. And I lost <laughs> right. this person and then a new person has to ramp up and all this other stuff. So I'm paying the same thing, um, but instead, but I'm taking on more risk, right? So like that kind of highlights the point. I think the first thing we have to do is really think about retention and keep in mind, like a few minutes ago, we were discussing about how the cost structure of these businesses has increased, right? And retention of employees usually came at a cost. It came at a cost associated with compensation, with perks, with benefits, with trips and rituals and all these things, right? Um, even things like counter offers, et cetera, they all cost something. And when you're trying to minimize costs, then how do you solve retention? You have to at least think about that, right? Like, what is our retention policy in 2023 is a question that if you haven't asked yourselves during planning, then you're not done with planning. Um, because the list of things you have to come up with are not the same things that you were doing before. They have to be different. Um, otherwise, you're putting, otherwise, your business model is going to break, right? So you have to really give that some thought. And people want to be respected. They want to be valued. They want to be treated like adults. They want to be equipped for success. They want opportunities for growth. They want so many things. You can't offer them everything, but you have to figure out what can we offer them and make sure you're doing that in a really good way. There's also a point to make over here that sometimes what people want and they need are two very different things. So an example is people want flexibility, but they actually do need some proximity to each other. Um, and so they, we need to find a way to bring people together for simple things like learning by osmosis, right? Like you learn a lot without even knowing you're learning just by being around coworkers. In a sales team, when you sit with five salespeople and you're all doing the same thing, even just by subconsciously listening to that good and bad calls, you are learning. Sure. And so we've got to we've got to solve against not having as much of that um, in this new world if we are remote, hybrid, and any form of hybrid. So the first thing is I think we've got to really have a, a strategy as to how we are going to retain top performers. Um, the second becomes uh, if you want to attract top performers, the, the first thing I think a company needs to do is get better at telling their story. Why are we an exciting place to build your career? You know, the software companies do that really well, right? Like people they that do. are working there, they really feel like they're changing the world. And sometimes the tool that they're selling is not changing the world, but they really feel like they are part of this movement and they are making the world a better place. And I, I sometimes wonder why, uh, why companies that are building the homes that we live in um, with with new and interesting ways of building those homes compared to just 10, 20 years ago, why companies that are establishing the infrastructure of our economy are not telling a better story and exciting people to come and work there and keeping the people that are there excited as well. Because if you can do that, then at least what it gives you is the probability of having a better talent pool to hire from. Because top mm -hmm. talent, um, they care about the journey. They want a purpose that makes them feel excited to get up at, uh, in the morning, get to work, um, and allows them to do some of the best work of their lives. And so this becomes um, is a missed opportunity so far. It's, it's not something that I think we need to keep doing. We're not doing a good enough job at this. The construction sector, the contractors, they don't do well here. And they need to get good at this. And then, then if you are doing a good job at this internally and externally, and you're doing what we just spoke about before this, which is equipping your people for success and have a real idea as to how you're creating stickiness with employees and keeping them 
engaged and happy. Well, mm. now you have this opportunity where these people will open up their networks to you. Um, they will, you don't want your friend to come and work at a shitty company, right? Like you'll be a horrible friend if you hated your job and you're like, you should come here. Um, you're not gonna do that. But if you love where you work, you're proud of it and you think you're doing a really good, uh, you're doing something good for this world and it's a great place to work and you feel valued and respected and you feel there's opportunity here, then you're going to tell your friend who's looking for a job and who's good, hey, check this out. And so I think A, it gives you um, a larger talent pool. B, the people you are attracting yourself and are going through your interview process if you by chance are trying to excite them about your company, which I think a lot of people don't do, they just grill candidates and they don't sell enough. But if you are actually selling your company to them, hearing it from the owner and the manager and the person you're reporting to is one thing. Hearing mm -hmm. it from a person that's at a, the same level as you might be at when you join is a totally different thing. It changes the mind about that organization. There's a lot less uh, take it with a pinch of salt when you hear from a person who's going to be at the same level than those people. For that person to say these things, you have to focus on them and keeping them excited and happy and also reinforcing the messaging that we spoke about. Um, the next thing I think that is important for a company if they want to be a talent magnet is I think they have to um, recognize that for them to be able to attract good people, they need really good people in that organization. Mm. A company full of C players is never going to attract A players. And so we, we shouldn't be making compromised decisions in hiring um, because it has offshoot effects that we sometimes don't recognize. If you hire people that are not amazing, then somebody amazing doesn't want to work there. And if by chance they decide to work there, soon, very soon they're going to get uninspired and they don't want to go somewhere else because you want to be surrounded by great people. And so I think it is important that people have a really high bar for hiring because that high bar um, will come at a cost, um, but it comes at lots of benefits. Um, and one such benefit is just the productivity per person, um, which is a great way to increase margin. And the second thing is it'll attract other people to your organization that are of the caliber that you want to hire. So those are like, there's so many things we can talk about. But I, I, in thinking about this question, it was like, what is the missed opportunity that we should be doing either which way and or the missed opportunities? And these were a couple of things that came to mind. Yeah, I think... Um... The on uh, just to comment on the the like really being strict and and staying disciplined about high performers versus C players, it's been my experience, and I'm curious if it's been yours too. That the real A play when you get really talented, hardworking, excellent problem solvers, people that are resilient. To use the word that you used a minute ago. It's not as though they are marginally better than the C players. They're actually orders of magnitude. We're, in my experience, you're dealing with multiples. They're not like 30% yeah, yeah. better. It's like 3x. No. And you're only oh paying them 50% more. Like it's yeah. so the the it's and it, I get that it's hard to kind of quantify this stuff. Some of it's just kind of your intuitive sense of working with the person. But when you have someone that is just a stud and you went through, you did the rigorous interviewing process, you turned down six other great candidates and you really, really courted this one because you knew that they were going to be the best. What they bring to the table is not a little bit better. It is so many times better. It's it is so much. It's such a difference. Um, it's not just even in their productivity today. 
It's like what they can mean for your business in the future. So they're going to sure. come in and they're going to do today's job better than a person who is you know, less capable than them. That's the reality of the situation, right? Like an A player, we're saying, is essentially more capable for a particular position than, than a B player and especially more than a C player. So you'll see a jump in productivity in that particular moment. But you'll also see that this person can mean more for your business in the future. They can grow faster than you ever thought anyone could grow. They can take on more responsibility. They're excited to do so. They bring in energy and an enthusiasm that is infectious. These are things that you want present in the organization. The challenge is that I think companies that don't hire at a very high velocity, which is a lot of companies and a lot of sectors, um, especially for a particular role, right? Like they might hire 50 people that year, but they're like a couple in every position, right? So you don't sure. really develop sophistication around every role. And that lack of sophistication around hiring for each of those positions plays out in a particular way, which is you don't know what it costs you and what you have to do to attract that A player, yeah. right? Um, a company that, and we spoke about this a little bit earlier, a company that's hiring at a very high velocity, they have to just be a lot more sophisticated around what is market rate for this type of candidate. Mm. Whereas a company that's hired this a salesperson once every two years, um, they'll be like, well, we were paying Bob this much and Jill is going to cost us 1.5 times that. Um, mm -hmm. How are we going to justify this? No, 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 this don't work. Actually, Bob's underpaid, Jill's asking for the right amount. And by not bringing Jill in, you're going to lose Bob because somebody else is coming to Bob and offering them markets. You're going to lose Bob anyway. And now you lost Jill and you hired, you know, um, I don't know, Bill, who's just not that good. Right, so now right. your company is a little bit screwed. So that, that's also something that I think companies have to really develop some sophistication around. Here's some rules of thumb, right? As well, that as we're talking through this, come to mind. If you are... If you have been asked for every raise that you have given, there's a red flag here. You're doing something wrong. If you are talking to a candidate um, and you have done all of the interviewing, then you're talking to the wrong person. Um, and if you are not talking to people, uh, if you're hiring for a role after three years and the people you're talking to are costing you the exact same as somebody you hired three years ago, you're talking to the wrong person. If you've been asked for every raise you've given as an employer, if you're the one who's being asked and giving out raises, you're doing something wrong. In other words, yeah. you should be preempting those those requests. 100%. Yeah. Like imagine how, how shitty. Asking for a raise is one of the most uncomfortable meetings that you have to go into. You have to essentially tell a person or a group of people who are responsible for managing you, hence need to have an intimate understanding of your impact on that organization and your performance. You're going to them to re-highlight this shit that they should have already known and then say, I feel like I deserve this. Whereas as leaders of an organization, we know who's good or not. I don't need to see a review at the end of the year to be like, oh, this person was good. I know it. If I'm their manager, I intimately know it. And if right. I'm that manager's manager, the manager should be telling me this. So I should even know it. Um, right. Or if anything, the manager should pull the data and send it to me. That person, I don't think, should be coming in and saying, let me tell you why I deserve a 10% raise and sweating before that meeting, being stressed about it, 
and then us saying, mm, you know, based on your performance, we believe it is 9%, not 10%. And everybody just walks out feeling weirded out and confused and uncomfortable. <laughs> we have to say, we should, have, we should know when a person is up for a race. Like that is not rocket science. And we should know before that person asks for it, wh- whether or not we're going to give one, how much it should be. And in an ideal scenario, at least for your top performers, in most of the time, you should be the one going to them. Now, mm. that doesn't mean 100% of your raises have to be you going to the person, right? Sometimes you think a person deserves it now um, on day Y, and the person believes they deserve it on day X, and they're coming to you a bit earlier, and you don't have the conversation to figure it out. But if every raise you've given was a raise you were asked for, or let's say even if 75% of the raises you gave were asked for, you've done something wrong. It says something. There's something systemic going on or something cultural that's going on. Some, some part of your leadership that, that uh, I totally hear what you're saying. It's a really, really interesting comment and a great rule of thumb for leaders to follow. Um, how, how important is staying on top of the... You know, you've, I think you said this on previous podcasts, and it's a quote I've used so many times since. The talent market functions like any other market. Um, how important is it for us going to to be to stay on top of the data of the market this coming year? Do we need to be uh, pulling reports, looking at graphs, checking out stocks, looking at the unemployment rate more often than maybe we have in years past? Yeah, I, I think it's. It's incompetence when people don't do it. I honestly, and I, I know that there are a lot of people that will say, oh, I don't care about macro. I'm, there are investors who who had never really invested in a market other than a booming market that used to say, we don't care about macroeconomic factors. There was a guy that made a statement recently that I really like. He said, interest rates are to valuations what gravity is to the apple. It is that much of a connection. It is that intimately connected. And if you're an investor whose main job is valuations, right, valuing this investment, is this a good investment or not, and you don't care about macro, then you're an idiot. Um, and I think, so So that's on the investor side, that's different. Um, I think as a business owner, as a manager, just as, as, as a professional that is not, let's say, in the first you know, couple of years of their career, not being aware of what's happening in the world around you is a really easy way to get blindsided. And if you're blindsided, you can scramble, but you're scrambling and you don't want to be scrambling uh, with such important things, right? So as, as leaders, I think it is important to spend some time understanding what's happening in the world around us, um, especially in this moment in time, because as you said, like for a while, we've been in an economy that's good or great, Right. And in good or great economy, if it's say, I know it's good or great, and this is what's going to be happening, and this is how I'm going to run my business within it. But imagine the people that knew that the economy was going to turn in mm-hmm. October and November of last year. Mm-hmm. Imagine the, the things they were doing for, and how long they were doing those things compared to people that were blindsided in July of this year. Right. It's just a, you've got more time to act and think. And sometimes you just have more time to think and get psychologically and mentally ready for the war that you're going into. If I'm in a fight. Right. And I know that I am going into this fight. I'm going to prepare for this fight. Right. Like if you look at a martial artist, like one of these UFC fighters, they prepare for the fight. So when they get to the day of the fight, they have a lot more composure, their nerves aren't going all over the place, and they can be really tactful and strategic. 
um, they can actually be able to do this high level problem solving. Um, and in their world, if you get the solution wrong, you get knocked out, right? So it's really high level problem solving with dire consequences. They can do this because of preparation versus when you get into a bar fight and you have no preparation, you don't know who you're <laughs> fighting, you don't know what the other person's skills are like or not, then you're just kind of at a very, in a very high risk situation, much higher than if you had a chance to prepare and go into that fight. I think business is very similar. You need to know what's happening in the world around you because if you, if you have a take on where things might go, you will get prepared for those things and mm. you will be able to navigate this business a lot better. The job of every executive is the same thing, no matter what sector they're in, which is the effective allocation of resources. If you drill things down to the lowest denominator, you That's get really it. interesting outcomes, right? So the right. effective allocation of resources for a manager, that is their time. For a director, that is time plus capital plus all these other things. For a business owner, it's the resources of the business. If you don't know where the world is going, or at least you know, what's going to happen in the very near term, how you don't effectively allocate resources, you can't. I think um, one of the things, the uh, the fighting analogy is a really interesting one. And so so you're, you're right in that business is like that, but here's what's slightly different. And I'm stealing this from someone way smarter than me. Uh, you know, MMA, if you're doing jujitsu or Muay Thai, the feedback loop is so much faster than in business. It's like it's moment to moment, whereas yeah. you can make judgment calls and decisions and not actually know whether that decision was good or bad months from now, quarters from now, in some instances, years from now. And that's a that's kind of a good uh, it's complementary to what you just said, which is complacency is a killer and vigilance is going to be key given that slow feedback loop. And given what's going on in the market right now, if there's nothing else anyone takes away from this, this conversation, I'd say this, like pay attention guys, like just yeah. stay up to date, read the books, scan the news, check out the markets. You know, you, you don't need to spend so much time on it that you forget your actual business, but, but for heaven's sake, don't, don't be insular. Don't don't live in an environment where you're completely unconcerned about what's going on outside your four walls. I don't think that serves you, and I don't think it serves your business. I want to end to on that. To your point, actually, before we do that, there's a sure. point that I think uh, is important to make here, which is that the feedback loop is slower, right, than when you were in a fight, for sure. But it can be faster than it is many of the times. Why? Because mm, you've got two types of indicators in a business. You've got leading indicators and lagging indicators. How many businesses do you know that realize that the economy has turned because their revenue numbers are showing up as having shown a decline? Right. That's a lagging indicator, yeah. meaning it ha the problem, it has taken place and you are now looking at that data point. But they're leading ind indicators, demand, sales cycles, right? Like two really simple ones. If you've seen a bit of a decrease in your website traffic, your inbound leads, and your sales cycles have increased, you know that something is up. It might not even show up in the revenue numbers of that month, but yeah, you know that something is up mm -hmm. and it will eventually show up, mm -hmm. but it might show up two months from now, but you caught it then. And what do you do? The, a business is a system is, is a bunch of instruments, right? And so you you and these instruments have data points that they show you. So you're able to kind of go and be be a bit of an inspector and say, okay, what are these data points telling us? Like, oh my God, here's some questions I need to go and ask clients to understand why these sales cycles got longer or why these customers um, are not going and looking at solutions anymore. 
Um, I need to talk to the market and that might give you some information that makes you make some business decisions before your revenue numbers show up as having dropped by 35%. One of the things I'm super proud of of our Breakthrough Academy members and I oversee and I kind of overhear these 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 conversations <clears throat> and comments all the time is is like you know, I don't, I, I can't really, I have a sort of sense about what's going on in the outside world, but I can speak, I think, with some confidence and some knowledge about the 500 contractors that we work with all over North America. They are on it. Like, I literally was talking to someone the other day and they were explaining to me, like, hey, I've noticed about a 22% drop in lead flow last month. Oh, I like that. Here are the things that I'm going to do as a result to just like make, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be checking little here, but I'm also going to be, I'm going to pay attention and stay alert. Here are a couple of things that I'm going to do tactically to prepare for that air bubble, which is going to make its way through lead flow to deals closed, to revenue produced, to cash collected. And it's just, there's a level of forward thinking. I like your term instruments. Like it is instrumentation. There's gauges and needles and dashboards all yeah, over. Literally. If you've set them up, but if, if that's what we do at Breakthrough Academy, if you don't do that, uh, or maybe you do have them, but you don't pay attention to them. Yeah, you can be like, man, you do not want to find out that you're in a down economy because your your monthly sales are 50% lower than they were last month. That's, That's a little such a late. good point it's that you made, late. right? Yeah. The point you made is such a good point. Like having them and then actually knowing how to use them. Like mm. do you, how many people out there have time blocked in their calendar every week at the same time? where they sit down and they look at the data of their business to understand what am I seeing here? Like what's mm -hmm. happening? And are they looking at it week over week, month over month, like whatever the right um, timelines are? Like you'd be surprised how few are actually spending that time. Mm -hmm. um, and so they might have even made the investments in having these tools uh, there that give them this feedback loop. They're just not leveraging it. And that, you know, there, there was somebody, I, I forget where I heard this, but there was somebody who was like, I'm excited to go into this market. The, uh, the interviewer was like, why? Like, because business has been easy for some time. Right. Um, and now you're really going to see who's really good and who's not. And it, it's, a, it's a moment for those that have been doing the right things to, you know, they're going to see the benefits of doing those right things in these moments. Um, and those that have been kind of riding the wave but haven't been at the yeah. right level, like they will struggle. And that's right. where the, when we say that you can't cross 15 cars when it's uh, sunny weather, but you can when it's raining, part of the reason is that. Um, and so for a lot of yacht lines, as you're saying, um, these are people that have been diligent and they've set up their businesses the right way and they're, they're proactively thinking about where the world is going and how they can navigate this. Period. And they'll be this fine. Is a chance, they'll be fine. This is I'm a very, chance very for them to actually mm -hmm. capture market share. Um, and that's a big thing that you shouldn't just be scared and on the back foot, like look for the opportunities. If there's a near-term opportunity to capture market share, find it. Um, be ready for a dogfight, like generating revenue in this market is a dogfight. Be ready for the dogfight. Make sure you are prepared for that. Um, and try at least at the most minimum to set yourself up that when the market shows an opening that you're able to capitalize on it. I... Um... You know, I, I had this closing question I wanted to ask you, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears a little bit because I think this is this is just what's front of mind for me right now. Okay, we're talking about a changing market. This is an overarching theme to today's conversation. What are you look at 
the year ahead, what are the key traits that you would tell employers and business leaders to look for in particular right now because there's so much stuff shifting? What are the what what are like the things that you would be like pouncing on in the people that you're interviewing uh, like moving into next year? Oh, yeah. So the non-negotiables in every economy, that's the first list, right? It is work ethic. There's that, that never a question, right? Like sure. I'm never going to, my job as a leader is not to motivate a person to work hard. That is not my job. And my incentive structure is not there to motivate a person to work hard. That, that doesn't work. Drive is inherent. It's natural. A person brings that to the table. You can direct drive with an incentive structure by saying you get 8% commission by sure. doing this and 2% by doing that. So the person knows to do that. You can do that. But the drive is non-negotiable. I also think that resiliency is non-negotiable, right? Like resiliency, you can talk about where it sits on uh, on the sequencing of things and how important it is. Maybe you can debate that. To me, high resiliency is non-negotiable in every market because business is hard. Being great is hard. It's going to come with losses. I You want people that are going to stretch and take risks and that means not everything is going to work out and you need to jump back up, especially in our world of sales, right? Like, a great salesperson closes half the deals they work on, meaning they need to get back up every time they fall down to keep moving forward, right? So drive and work uh, work ethic and resiliency to me become non-negotiables. Sure. I also think a level of emotional intelligence is necessary in business because no matter what, you're going to deal with people. And if you're not emotionally intelligent, you can't deal with them effectively. So I think, again, non-negotiable. You're going to deal with internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. And if you're not emotionally intelligent, you're not going to be able to do it effectively. Mm. And then I think, again, and this is to me, I, I need to work with intelligent people that are curious. And they're not just curious about random shit. They're curious about the shit that we do. And mm. so why? Because I think great careers are built through et- development of expertise. For the development of expertise, your career has to be in a space where you have interest and your your talents lend well to that thing, right? So for that, I think intelligence and curiosity are necessary because if you're interested in something and you have the talent for it, then you're going to do the effort to deploy your curiosity in that space. And over time, because you're smart, as you're in, in, in getting information in, you're gonna process it to create expertise. So this becomes non-negotiable. Now, I think in this market, uh, some other things that are really, really important that you might not necessarily be as heavily focused on before. Sure. I think creativity. Yeah. Creativity is so important because before we've said that sometimes for a while we were in a market where demand was flying in. And when demand flies in, the business challenge is a process challenge, right? I have so much demand. I need to find the most efficient and effective way to To navigate this, right? To take this through my process and be able to get as much of this demand converted into revenue as possible. And so I don't need to be super creative. I actually need people that are going to take this playbook, that are going to look at this process and they're going to do things exactly the way I need them to do it because this is the most efficient way to move through my assembly line from a sales perspective, right? And so now in this market, the reason creativity is important is demand isn't just flying in through the doors. You have to generate demand. You have to really think about 
how am I going to have a pipeline of high quality opportunities to convert into revenue? In a market where demand is low, meaning all of our competitors have more time than they had before and they are trying to solve the same problem. So we are all aggressively going out into the market. Where does that show up? If you're a B2B company, that shows up in the number of cold emails and cold calls your prospects are getting. Mine have increased by 70% since the market has dropped. I have gotten 70% more cold calls and emails since the market has cooled down, right? And this number is increasing month over month. Someone and was so, saying that the other day, Austin. They're like, cold calling's back. And I was like, Oh my it? God. Yeah. And it is so bad. Like it is, cold calling's back and cold emails are just like, half the emails Skyrocket I get every day almost are cold emails. I feel like right? I'm getting a lot of inbound stuff too right now. It's actually funny you say that. A lot of LinkedIn messages all of a sudden. Oh my God. And they're horrible. Like everything's horrible because we optimize for volume and not for quality. That's a different discussion. Right. Uh, but everybody is going out there and is doing the activity. So what, what differentiates yourself, right? Actually, it's creativity. Like the person that is going to say, okay, how do I really get this prospect to talk to me when this prospect has been reached out by all of our competitors at least 18 times? So creativity becomes really important. Oh, this deal is stuck at the final last mile. The client wants this price because our competitor offered this. We can't do that, but how do we close this deal? That's right. where creativity comes in. Is there you anything somebody... else that, that really just like, right, like creativity is one? Is there another trait where you just like have to have it right now? I would love that people realize the difference between resiliency and anti-fragile. Um, so there's a book, Nassim Talib, called Anti-Fragile. He did this study where he realized that the opposite of fragile is not resilient. That's the midpoint of the spectrum. So fragile, you know, will break in the in face of volatility. Resilient will survive volatility. The end of the spectrum or the other end is will thrive um, and will improve when faced with volatility. And I think uh, we do a good job at testing for resiliency, but we don't realize that we actually need people that improve in the face of volatility. I've noticed this uh, as through the pandemic, uh, we became a better organization because of the pandemic, way better now than we, we got were so much better. Same thing. Right? I know exactly what you're talking so about. You, yeah. When you're qualifying people, you can ask those questions that help you understand, like, has this person got better over the last three years as a human being in some capacity or not? Because that anti-fragile mindset, having that as part of the people that you bring into the organization can be a real difference maker. There are many more, but if I had to pick two, it's creativity and it's being anti-fragile. I love it. I've been, um, I was just writing a bit the other day on, on problem solving. That's a trait that's extremely front of mind for me. And I get, you know, you could, you could, you know, getting, we're arguing over semantics here, but you could kind of slot that into the category, the, the creativity category as well. But one thing that I'm thinking about a lot next year is looking for problem solvers. And there's a great quote from a guy that we had speak at one of our, um, one of our events a couple of years ago. And he says, Leaders make problems go away. And I've just never, I've never forgotten that because it's just, it really rings true for me. Like leaders make problems go away and everyone else just identifies the problem. And I think mm. that there's a very nuanced difference that I'd want, I, I'm encouraging people to pay attention to. Identifying a problem is 1% as hard as solving a problem. In other words, people who 100%. show up on your desk and come in your office and say, hey, did you know our CRM sucks? Did you actually know that, um, you know, like the SOPs for this part of our business are totally out of date? Did you know that this new employee you hired isn't that good? It's like, 
I'm the, I own this business. I do know. And occasionally you might show up, you might point out a blind spot that I didn't know. But you know, I'd make the case most of the listeners, 99% of the time, they actually know that stuff already. And what they're really looking for is not someone who just rings the alarm bell, who rings the alarm bell quietly, comes up with the solution, implements it 30% of the way, and then comes to you and says, this is something I found. Here's what I'm putting forward to solve I it. Really like Can it. you support me to just like finish the job here a little bit? That is a completely different trait than someone who comes into your office on Monday morning and says, hey, by the way, did you know this other thing is broken? It's like, that doesn't actually help us that much. I think like this is such a critical point, right? That it's your job to hire people that are like this, right? Like a lot of times leaders are frustrated, like, oh my God, these people just keep bringing the problems. Nobody's Mm. on a problem solving mindset. It's like, yeah, because you made bad hires. Mm. Um, You you made your bed sleep in it. Um, I think it's important to really try and qualify this upfront because it can be such a significant difference maker and probably a way to like minimize the risk of not hiring people like this is make this one of your values that as an organization, you can phrase it in a fancy way, but as an organization, we don't just identify problems. We identify solutions to those problems before we talk to anyone about the problem. Like that's what you want to see in the organization. And if you've got that in spades, uh, you will have a competitive advantage. Yeah, things just get so much easier, man. So much easier when you have people who truly make problems go away. Um, so listen, let's let's end it at that. We went a little long, but this is just—it's always so fun talking to you, man. I think we got to bring this to a close. I um, I really appreciate the time and the thought and the research that went into this. If people want to connect, and they're getting lots of LinkedIn messages already, where where can people check you out if they want to ask a quick question or just follow along your journey? Um, they can add me on LinkedIn. I'm very happy to connect over that. Um, if they just want to get connected and you know um, be aware of each other. Um, but if they have a question, probably the best way to reach me would be to email me. Uh, it is my first name dot last name at salestalentagency.com. So asad.zaman at salestalentagency.com. Thank you so much for being here today, Asad. Uh, I know it's getting late over there. We appreciate you and uh, we'll do this again soon. My pleasure, Benji. Thank you for having me. Uh, It has been, it's always fun. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I look forward to coming back at some point. Appreciate it. All the best. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.